I want to begin with a, a reading from God's Word. I think it's a fitting passage as we consider the body of Christ, the family of God. If you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 20 and we're going to read through um, a part of chapter 4 here. The Word of God says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many of you were raised in a dysfunctional or broken family? Yeah, that's right. We all see it in a broken world. We see it in today's age. Family is absolutely being attacked by Satan, um, by the, the authorities and our, the, the power figures in our society. And what we see in the world around us is brokenness, estrangement, conflict, um, with, with families. And so I would imagine when, we, <clears throat> when you, we speak of the church as the family of God, for, for people who come from broken family situations, that can be kind of a hard dynamic. But the fact of the matter is, is that the church is a spiritual family. I, I did not grow up in a Christian home. And when God saved me, and I came to the realization that my only hope for eternal life and forgiveness of sins was found in the atoning work of Jesus Christ our Lord and His resurrection from the dead, a transformation occurred, and my, my blood family, there became division, uh, a certain degree of estrangement and I had a new family. I, I had to have a new family because my, my loves, my affections, um, my, my loyalties were fundamentally altered and I served Jesus Christ. And so um, this, is a, this is a really important topic, thinking through the church as family. And I, I assume that you, my men, you guys have a desire to be um, used by God to be an effective member of your spiritual family. I think that you want to be a good family member. That's, that's my uh, assumption as we talk. And so what I want to do is just talk some shop with you, um, think through some biblical principles together, some strategic practices that will... Help us to be more effective family members for one another so that we would build up one another in Christ, that the, that the glory of God would be seen in his church to a lost and, and hopeless world. And so what we're going to do, <clears throat> first I want us to look at some principles. I want to look at four one another principles that build up our spiritual family. And... Uh, if you guys have been studying scripture for a long time, you're probably familiar with what we call the one another passages in scripture. And, and the one another um, exhortations 
um, these are, are meant, one another is a, like a reciprocal uh, term, right? It's, it, it shows how we're to relate to one another. The one another's, it's like the, it's the, like the glue that binds the spiritual family together. And there, there's, o, there's over 20 one another's in Scripture. And I just thought I was going to, I would handpick four of them for us today that I think um, are doable. I think that you can look to um, as far as a mindset and also as a practice. So <clears throat> we're just going to jump right into this. The, the first one another principle that I want us to consider is, um, is this one another. It's be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 12, 10. Go to Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This is a paradigm shifting one another if we would but just ponder it for a short while. This accentuates that family dynamic in Christ's church. What Paul is calling for is for our churches to be characterized by a warm, loving, family atmosphere. Church is not an event that we attend. Church is not merely an activity that we do. Church is, is certainly not merely a building. The church of Jesus Christ is a, is a group of blood-bought brothers and sisters. Um, this exhortation, it's very interesting. There is no verbal command in the original Greek. It, it consists of, of two uh, very rich adjectives. The first one is the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia. The city is named, it's called the city of... Brotherly love, and it's just always funny because it's ironic. It doesn't seem like that city's a very kind, brotherly love place. Was it always that way? I don't know. But Philadelphia, Philadelphia is literally love and brother combined. And it's really interesting. The, the Greek word for uh, brother, Adelphos, um, that little, literally refers to uh, one who is born from the same womb. One who is born from the same womb. And this word, just thinking about this word, it says so much about how Christians are to relate to one another. Why does Paul <clears throat> uh, exhort the church to love one another as brothers? Um, because we tend to love and prioritize our blood family, right? That's just the, the way it normally operates. And what Paul, what Paul is saying, we need to apply that same love that, 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 um, that we share in blood with one another. In fact, this word for brother, it's used about 220 times in the New Testament to refer to the Christian family. And so, so the, this idea of family, it's, it's just a major teaching and assumption of the church. The second adjective that's used in Romans 12.10, um, it, it combines the word uh, uh, philos with storge, and it refers to a natural family love or tender affection. In, in other words, when Paul uses these two adjectives, in this phrase in Romans 12.10, he is trying to convey as strongly as possible the, the warm devotion and tender affection that we should treat one another as members of Christ's church. This is like, this, this one another, some of the one another's are one another's a practice, if you will. This is more an attitudinal one another. It's a mindset one another. We are a family. We are the family of God. We are the family of Christ. We, we have the same spirit. In God's sovereign grace, we have been predestined to adoption into God's family. 
Jesus Christ calls us brothers, Hebrews says. And the idea here is that this family should receive just as much love and care as one's biological family. The Christians in our churches are family members. Are, and and what, what makes this so beautiful, as Pastor Rick was, was drawn out, is that what makes us family is not what we look like, what not, not our, our cultural background, uh, our demographics. What makes us family is our union with Jesus Christ, our head. And it, it is so beautiful and powerful to see that. When Jesus was pressured, this is really interesting, when Jesus was pressured to give attention to his blood relatives in ministry, he did not succumb to it. In Mark chapter 3, it says that, Then his mothers and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. And I think that's so sweet and tender. And I think that, that, that we should apply that when it comes to our church family tomorrow when you guys walk through the doors of your church facility. When you see so-and-so woman or so-and-so girl, so-and-so man or so-and-so boy, you need to see them as spiritual relatives. That's your, that's your dad. That's your granddad. That's your mother in the faith. That's your sister. This, this kind of brotherly love, it's not just mentioned here in 12, Romans 12.10. It is a theme of the New Testament. The Apostle John in 1 John 3.14 says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren, he says. He who does not love abides in death. And it's here where the Apostle John says that really one of the, one of the main evidences that you have been transformed by the grace of God that you've gone from, from spiritual death into spiritual life is that you, you love your spiritual family. You actually consider them as brothers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-10, through 10, Paul says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In Hebrews 13.1, it says, Let love of the brethren continue. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Then also, Peter in 1 Peter 3.8 says to sum up all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, and in the Greek, it's, it's Philadelphia, brotherly love, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And so what we see here with, with these, all these passages and verses that, that speak of uh, the body of Christ as brothers and, and the call and exhortation for us to love, what you see is the heart of God. The heart of your God is for you to treat your fellow members of the church not merely as acquaintances, not merely um, members of a social club. You know, a lot of times when we think of membership, we think of a Costco membership, a YMCA membership, and, and that when we, when we use the term church membership, that's not what that refers to. <clears throat> it refers to family membership. An unbreakable bond. Um... So I want us to, to think through some implications of this one another. Uh, the first implication is attitude. And I just want to encourage you um, in your mind to every single week that you're walking up into that church building, that you are, you're picturing the people inside that church as your fathers, your mothers, your sisters and brothers brought close together by the bonds of faith and love 
in Jesus Christ. And that, that, will, that will shift other um, behaviors and practices that you have in your, your mindset within a church. The other, another implication of this one another is priority. Who are we naturally and even rightly most devoted to? Are we not most naturally devoted to our blood kin, right? And that's exactly why Scripture uses this description of the members of a church because we are to prioritize one another. The third implication um, of this one another is genuine interest. Genuine interest, I assume, for the most part, that when you have family gatherings, I assume when you gather around your dinner table with your uh, brothers and sisters or your, your father or your mother or, uh, or your children, that you really want to know what's going on in their lives. I assume that when you're with your actual physical family, that you're not just asking questions just to, get, just to buy time, but that that's their sincere interest in what's going on in their lives. And that's the way it should be with our spiritual family as well. Um, we should, you should know what's going on in the, in, the, in, in the lives of your church family, what's going on in, in their family, how their work is going, um, the challenges that they face in life, the trials that they are going through. Um, we, we should be um, uh, aware of what's going on in each other's lives. Another implication of this one another is that of deep affection and concern. Deep affection and concern. In Romans 12.15, we're called upon to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And the only way for, <clears throat> the only way for that to take place the only way for us to rejoice and celebrate with people or cry and mourn with people is if we're in their lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, another implication of this, I want to use the word reconciliation. Um, we hate it when there's strain in our, fam in our family relationships, whether it's uh, immediate family or extended family. We try to bridge the gaps as much as we can. How much more should it be in the spiritual family of God? We're going to hurt one another in, in the church. We are going to sin against each other. We can't be naive about that. We're going to misunderstand each other. Um, and what we can do when this happens is we reach out to each other. And because, because we're more than acquaintances, because we're not just members of a club, but we're actually family members, this has to be dealt with. And we need to resolve this. And, and, and not only do we need to resolve, we can resolve this because once again, um, our unity is not based on our personality um, or, or our circumstances. Our unity is based on Christ. And if, if Christ has forgiven us, then we can forgive our brothers. So, um, we are, we're called to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Let me ask you this question, dear friend. I want you just to think about this. Do you have a blood brother relationship in your church? A blood brother quality relationship in your church? A brother that you can go to to communicate sin's temptations? A brother you can go to when you've fallen uh, into lust? A brother that that you can go to when you're struggling in your marriage. You need your spiritual family. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Let's now go to the, the second one another principle. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And that's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Go ahead and go there. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 5, it says, And you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. <clears throat> we started out with love, and now we're going to humility. And I think 
Humility is another one of those attitudinal one another's. Um, and I believe that love and humility belong to the Mount Rushmore of Christian virtues. Imagine if your life was utterly filled with a love for Christ and a love for others and a humility before the Lord and a humility before others. If we, if we put on these attitudes, um, our witness would be um, amazing. Love and humility, when they flavor our words, the church is a powerful witness. It's really hard to um, rank the list of virtues found in the Bible, but if, if I were just to go to one, if you were to ask me what the, a key virtue is, I would say humility. Because if you think about it, humility is like the soil in which all the rest of the Christian graces uh, grow up from. There cannot be any love without humility. There, there cannot be any patience without humility. There can't be any thankfulness um, if there is no humility. And, and we go on and on. So it's, it's hard to overestimate the importance of humility. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, we see one manifestation of humility. It says the younger men are to submit to the elders. Here, um, this most likely, it refers to not merely the older men of the church, but likely the, the church officers. And uh, that's just a good exhortation. And I, I would exhort the young men in this room um, to have a submissive spirit towards the shepherd elders of your church. Um, young men, you are, you are full of vigor and energy and passion, and that is awesome. Um, and you're not always going to see eye to eye and, and completely understand maybe the direction that the shepherd elders are, are leading the church in, but Scripture calls for you to, to submit um, in humility. That's, that's the principle behind the submission. And so after that, Peter, he goes on to call upon each member of the church to clothe themselves with humility toward one another. The Greek word for humility, it's a compound word. It, it combines the word lowly with mind together. Therefore, the idea here is that all Christians, we, have to, we are called to esteem ourselves very lowly. And apparently this word wasn't even in existence until the Christian era. In other words, humility is the tailor-made clothing of a Christian. And the thing about humility, it's not so much that you, you talk about yourself in a lowly way, it's just that you don't talk about yourself at all. That's the point of humility, is that you know that you're on the road to humility when, when self isn't even a part of the picture. What is humility? Humility is a proper assessment of one's limitations and sins in light of God's power and grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, where is the boasting? Where, what, what, what do we have to give to God except for the sin that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross? I've been, I've been bought by the blood of the Lamb of God. I mean, what, why should I have a high view of myself? Humility is the right perspective in which the Christian understands that he deserves or merits nothing from God. In other words, he is the beneficiary of God's free and merciful grace. Show me the one who truly understands God's sovereign grace. And I'll show you the man that is humble. And in this command, it says, all of you, all of you clothe yourselves. That means the old need to be clothed with humility even though you, you have experience and maturity. You still need to be humble. It means the young. It means the experienced. It means the naive. It means leaders need to be humble. Servant leaders. All members. <clears throat> it's a this is a great visualization. Clothe yourselves with humility. And the, the visual is that I, apparently in Roman times, Slaves, for the most part, they looked like normal people. Um, you couldn't recognize a slave from another person, except for they would tie a white scarf or an apron over his clothing to, to distinguish himself from a free man. And so that's probably the picture that, that Paul is, or excuse me, that Peter is using here. 
Peter, he witnessed firsthand Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, girding himself with a towel so that he would wash the feet of his disciples. So, humility is to characterize us so much that it is like the very clothing that we put on. It should be, in other words, it should be obvious and plain that, that you are a man of grace and you are humble. Humility is an, is an attitude. It's a virtue, an inner virtue. And it's best expressed, though, regarding how you treat others. Go to Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read, in, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Oh, do you see these strong uh, descriptions of church body life? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. <clears throat> Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just remarkable, remarkable instruction for the church. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. See others as more important than yourselves. So humility is the opposite of selfishness or conceit. Humility considers others as more important. Humility looks out for the interest of others. Humility is modeled by Christ Jesus. You are no more like Christ than when you are humble. You want to be like Christ. Our pursuit of holiness is the pursuit of Christ-likeness. Christ was humble. I want to highlight some implications of this one another. The first implication, I want to use the word preference. Preference. When we are humble before one another, it means that we are going to defer to one another. It means that, that we are going to give preference to one another, one another's uh, desires. Um, we will stand down to one another when, when another brother has a strong view of something that, that isn't directly taught in Scripture. We can defer and show preference. It refers in Scripture, in the book of Romans, it refers to pleasing one another. And the idea is giving preference to brothers in terms of Christian liberty and conscience. The, the humble brother, understanding that his activity um, is permissible by Scripture. He's willing to lay down his life um, so that he doesn't offend his brother. So preference is a huge one. Um, that's a huge deal in body life dynamics, being willing to show preference to others. The, another word I want to use for an implication is service. Humility, a humble attitude, naturally reflects itself in a mindset of service towards one another. It means that a, a person starts to take the the focus, the light, the attention off himself, and now is, is um, alert to the needs of others and seeks to meet those needs. It, it means that it mean, the, the humble person does not look for areas of prominence and, uh, when it comes to service, but they are content with mopping the bathroom floor and uh, cleaning up food messes, and so on and so forth. This is, this is humility. Another implication is forgiveness. Um, do you think the church needs forgiveness in its ongoing body life? Of course it does. Well, we can't be easily offended. We need, to, we need to show grace to one another. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we're exercising humility 
towards one another. So clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Let's go to the, the third one another principle. And it's encourage one another. This is a huge one. This is such a blessing to people in the church. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think my mic went out, and that's not good because my voice went out. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. And then I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The verb for encouragement in the Greek is the, the word parakaleo, and uh, that's connected to the noun form where we get paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit, and it means to call to the side of. Call to the, to the side of. Um, this word, it, it has rich significance and usage. It is used in the sense of to summon one to obedience or to courage. It can be used in the sense of exhorting someone. It can be used also in the sense of to comfort or to console or to encourage. In the secular literature, the word was used for a for a general of an army to, um, to embolden his soldiers to, to go to battle and to be courageous and strong. Think of the, word, the English word encouragement. That's the, that's the idea. When it, biblical encouragement is filling someone with confident, Christ-centered, God-centered courage and confidence. Jay Adams, the, the biblical counseling pioneer, he, had, he defines encouragement as, quote, <clears throat> inward strengthening by the unfailing promises and gracious growth-promoting challenges of God's Word, end quote. True biblical Christian encouragement is God-based, God-centered. Uh, the, the purpose is to glorify God. So encouragement is a practice that helps, strengthens, or builds up traits that are related to faith. Let me ask you this question. Why is encouragement necessary and vital for the church, for our spiritual family? I, I want to get some feedback here. Why? Why do we need this, guys? Living in a sinful world, good. What else? So we don't lose heart, good. What else? Lies, is that what you said? To combat lies from Satan. I didn't quite catch that, what did you say? We lack courage, thank you. That's right. Yes. 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 Doubts and lack of assurance. Um, someone mentioned we live in a sin world and, and we still have the presence of sin. The penalty of sin has been dealt with. The power of sin has been dealt with. But we still have the presence of sin. And, and when sin is present in our hearts, sometimes we get timid and we start to worry, is God going to really forgive me? Can it be, am I really a Christian? Uncertainty in life, sickness and illness, personal loss, distress and affliction, the ups and downs of progressive sanctification, a personality that, that tends towards faint-heartedness, Sometimes we need extra resolve to, for obedience when it requires sacrifice. We need endurance and perseverance in ministry. So, uh, encouragement is needed for heavy hearts. Encouragement is needed for the hurting and the downcast. Everybody under the sun has to contend with the effects of sin and the fall. And we need one another 
to help each other march on to the celestial city. And I'm using a, a, a visual there from Pilgrim's Progress on purpose. Think of Pilgrim's Progress. Think of that great book. How was it that Christian was able to make it all the way? Was it not his great interactions with friends along the way who, who flooded him with encouraging words of truth, whether it's evangelist or, or hopeful or whatever, whoever it was? And the reason why Bunyan included that, I think, is because he understands that the Christian life, it's meant to be, we're meant to be brothers in Christ and to spur one another to keep on marching to the city together. The profound impact of your words, it cannot be understated. Listen to the Proverbs. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. What's our source for encouragement? It is the very Word of God. Go to Romans chapter 15. I want you to see this. The only thing that's going to be enough for encouragement is not going to be, hey, everything's going to be okay. Um, you'll get through this. We have to have something much more powerful and profound than that. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The encouragement, what does it say? Of the Scriptures. That's what floods our hearts with hope. And so I want to help you with that. Um, I, want to, I want to hopefully provide some, some ways to encourage one another that, that are biblical. The first way is this. Point them to God's character. Point one another to God's character. His sovereignty. His wisdom. His love. His mercy, His faithfulness. One of my favorite passages that I like to share with people when they're, when they're going through discouragement, when they're going through pain and affliction, is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. It says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. And that's what we have to do when we encourage brothers. We have to, we have to, um, we have to influence their minds with the truth. It says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now when you're going through affliction, oftentimes your, your mind won't take you to lamentations. That, that's why you need a brother to step in and read you this passage. Brother, remember... His loving kindnesses never cease. His, his compassions, they never fail. Every single morning, God's grace is for you. He is faithful. He's going to get you through this trial, brother. Right? Point them to God's character. Second, refresh them in God's grace. This is another favorite scripture that I like to encourage brothers in. <clears throat> In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You therefore, my son, be strong. Be strong, he says, but listen to this. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This fight for sanctification, this, or maybe you're a brother in ministry, you're not on your own. You can't do this by your own strength or wisdom. You can't just be strong. We can't just tell people to be strong. Because from beginning to finish, our life in Christ is that of grace. And so whatever God has required of us, He has empowered us by His, by His grace to accomplish that. We need to remember that, that we stand strong in Christ in His grace. It's, Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And, and maybe you're a brother right now that's going through some hard times in life. 
Um, you're fighting off sin. You, you have a trial. I want to let you know that God's grace is sufficient for you. He will strengthen you and build you up. He, he's using the fight and the trial for your good. Okay, the third thing, we, we refresh them in God's grace. We point them to God's character. We remind them of God's promises. We have to go back to the promises because Satan is a liar. Satan is, it tries to influence and shape our thinking so that we're listening to our feelings and we have to preach the truth to ourselves and not listen to our feelings. Here's one I like to use when, when discipling men who are struggling with sin. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When you sin is your first instinct to question your salvation. I would say that's an unhealthy practice. I think the, the better thing to do is that when you sin, you should remind yourself that you have an advocate Jesus Christ the righteous who took care of every single sin of yours on the cross and you, can, you look to him. Another way of encouragement is to highlight their God-given growth and faithfulness. This is really a big one. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. I, don't, I have to move along here, but... I want to exhort you to become a living grace dispenser. Recognize other people, in other people, God's work in their lives and tell them about it. Lavish, concrete compliments upon people. And this is a way of affirming God's grace in someone. This glorifies God when you um, withhold encouragement, encouraging words, positive feedback in people that you see God working through, you're robbing God of his glory. So I want to encourage you to, to thank people frequently and get very specific when it comes to the life of the church. If you see a brother or sister and week after week in the Wednesday evening fellowship, they're serving the body of Christ food, let them know how much you appreciate them doing that. And, and that includes encouraging the teachers of the church. All godly teachers and preachers, they don't do this for man's praise. It can be a temptation, but that's not fundamentally why they do it. They, they want to help. They want to help you grow in Christ. They want to be a, a benefit to your soul. And, and Galatians actually commands God's people to... Um, Tell the teachers of the word what you appreciate about that. So we see that the tongue is a powerful instrument of grace for encouragement. Encourage one another, brothers. Let's go to the fourth and final one. And it's greet one another. Greet one another. So this, this one I really enjoyed uh, considering and, and, and thinking about. And I think this one gets overlooked. I mean, what am I doing at a a men's Bible conference about ready to exhort you to greet one another. It just seems kind of weak. Or... But this is a meaningful principle of our life together as Christ's family. And you might be surprised how many times Christians in the household of God are commanded to greet one another in the Bible. <clears throat> so I'm going to read off the, the commands. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans 16, 16. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. 
Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5.26 Greet one another with a kiss of love. 1 Peter 5.14 How many of you guys are a part of your church's greeter ministry? Got some? Awesome. Well, it turns out that every member of God's family is, is to be a greeter. Because there's five different epistles that make a call for greeting one another. And not only that, to do that with a physical gesture of a kiss. And the idea here is that our family is built up when we incorporate warmth, sincerity, and affection into our interactions and conversations with one another. But first, let's address the kissing, should we, shall we not? Because... <laughs> Because the Word of God commands you to kiss, right? I mean, what are we to do with that? Is this a specific practice to be employed absolutely universally throughout the church? Church history has some references to this practice, actually. Clement of Alexandria commanded that the kiss be closed-mouthed. So just, I'm giving you guys some help as we... Um, sorry, I just think that's hilarious. There's some other, okay. Justin Martyr, he mentions this in the liturgy, that, it, that the, the kiss is to be implemented before communion. So if there's any worship pastors, you can uh, put the, the holy kiss before the, the Lord's t- uh, Supper tomorrow. Um, Tertullian, he wrote of how nervous he was about his wife meeting, quote, any one of the brethren to exchange the kiss, end quote. (laughs) Now, ironically, he also complained of people who refrained from the practice of kissing due to fasting in his writings. (laughs) So apparently in the Western church, kissing ceased in the 1300s. Are we required to, to kiss? No. Um, what, we, what you want to do is you want to distinguish between function versus form. Um, so most of the one another injunctions have to do with function, uh, the, like the ones that we've already talked about. But the kiss adds a form to it. And forms are, are typically flexible and based on cultural setting. So we can replace the kiss, yes, with... Uh, with a handshake, a courteous bow, uh, a hug, a pat on the uh, back. So why is greeting one another important and beneficial? Um, It's called the holy kiss. And I think the reason why he uses the word holy there is that it's not, greetings are not to be mere formality. It's a physical expression of the sanctified relationship we share with one another. We are truly brothers and sisters in Christ. We're set apart by the gospel. We're a holy people. And therefore, this interaction is meaningful and rich. Our interaction should expand past mere formalities. This signifies the unity that we share with one another when we greet one another warmly and sincerely. This signifies the closeness that we have, the intimacy that we have in Christ. It also signifies the affection that we should have for one another as brothers. And so let's think about some application for our greeting ministry. First, I want to encourage you to learn and retain names. Learn and retain names. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Greet Mary. Greet Herodian. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. Paul mentions 26 people by name in his greeting that is found in the 16th chapter of Romans. So this social grace is impactful. Listen to someone's response when you ask, how are you doing? Don't just say, how are you doing? And then move right along. Because maybe that brother is not doing so well. Maybe he needs to hear someone. Maybe he needs encouragement. Be mindful of nonverbal communication. Eye contact 
eagerness to smile. I don't think uh, one application of greet one another with a kiss of love is, is not to be scowling at each other, right? Um, some of us as men, we kind of project this angry disposition about us, almost like, like we're scowling. And, it, and I, I think one application of this one another is that we should present ourselves as very warm and affectionate towards one another. And I'll, I think another application is to engage in appropriate physical expressions of warmth. No, we're not to kiss, but let's, let's do a firm handshake. Let's, let's, let's hug each other. Let's pat on the back. Let's, let's be eager and energetic and enthusiastic to see one another and to interact with one another. And then the final one is be proactive. And this is a good one for men. Be proactive. Don't be the guy that just comes to church, finds his seat on the pew, even opens up his Bible. I hate to say that, but um, it's good to read your Bible, but maybe when you're at church, you should be engaging with the body because this is the family meeting. Notice the, the, the one another is not to be greeted by one another, but to greet one another. It's an active tense verb. We need to, we need to pursue each other. We need to be proactive. Greet one another. We're exhorted. So, how many of you serve in the greeter ministry in your church? All of us. Let's all raise our hands to that. Greeter needs to be an identity for us. Can it be said of you that you display Christ-filled love and affection in how you address and interact with your brothers and sisters? It, it may seem small, but it makes a big difference in the culture of your church. It will build each other up. So that's four one another principles that God himself has given his church to employ. And these principles will be applied to great benefit and blessing to your church family. Brotherly love, Christ-like humility, God-centered encouragement, and warm greetings. We don't have time to go through some of those strategic practices that build up your spiritual family, but we have handouts there. You can take that. And, and uh, I was going to expand on some of that stuff, but maybe that'll be hopeful Helpful food for thought. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ in your Holy Spirit in which we share together. There is one Lord, one baptism, one Spirit. Oh, how good it is to be present with brothers in unity. God, help us to, to be great family members. God, I pray that we would take on the identity as, of brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers within the church, that we would have great family affection together, that we would present ourselves with humility, that we would be on the alert on how we can encourage one another in the Lord and for courage to, to stay in the faith, to persevere. And God, that we would be just warm as we greet one another and interact with one another with, with, with depth and true concern. Oh God, surely Christ will be glorified if we would just put on these attitudes and practices. We pray that he would be glorified and that the outside world would see a compelling, supernatural family at work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.